text for this morning found on page 1671 in the Pew Bibles in front of you. We take a pause from our time in the Gospel of Luke to consider this passage having to do with what we know as Palm Sunday. This is God's inspired word, our only authority in faith and in life. Please give your attention to its reading. John 12, 9 through 19. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well, for on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and putting their faith in him. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the feast heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat upon it, as it is written, Do not be afraid, O daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had given this miraculous sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. The grass withers, the flower fades. The word of our God endures forever. Amen. What will 4th of July celebrations look like in 200 years? Especially, what will they look like if the United States, as we know it, is no longer a world power? If it has a totally different form of government or is under the rule of another nation? It's quite likely that in the course of the next couple centuries, this could happen. So imagine with me then that in 200 years, July 4th celebrations are merely an attempt to remember what was true of the land long ago. No one that is living has experienced the liberty and the freedom that made this nation one of the most unique in all of the world. They merely have heard stories of what it is like. Imagine one year in the midst of this pattern, in these kinds of trying to conjure up what the country used to know and experience, imagine that a hero emerges, one who comes with great power and authority, one that people think can be the one to bring independence and freedom back to the land. He is the George Washington of his time. And imagine that he enters Washington, D.C. one year at the height of his popularity right on the 4th of July. This situation describes a bit of what it would have been like to see Jesus ride into Jerusalem on what we know as Palm Sunday. The Jews had remained under foreign rule for centuries, and for many, hopes of freedom must have seemed faint at best. For others, it would have seemed like mere delusion. There's no way that we can get our freedom back. Yet here is this man, Jesus, 
And he comes to Jerusalem at the feast of the Passover, which for Israel, this was their 4th of July celebration. This is when they celebrated the fact that God had brought them out of the bondage in Egypt and had given them liberty in the land of Canaan. The celebration was much different now that they were under Roman rule, but they remembered it just the same. We see this morning that this passage is full of confused parties. The Pharisees, the everyday Israelites, and even the disciples of Jesus are not quite sure what's going on or what to make of what Jesus is doing. They interpret the signs differently. On the one hand, Jesus is bad news for the leaders in Israel. On the other hand, he is good news for the normal people of Israel, but they're misunderstanding what is so significant about Jesus. Yet through all of this, what we see is the Father's commitment to his will in the life of Jesus Christ. We see that it is certain that everything that Jesus was to do would be accomplished. And we see that it is God himself who bestows a salvation that is better than anyone in this passage could have imagined. In short, Jesus comes to us as a king in a way that we never could have even hoped for or expected. And that is the hope of Palm Sunday, of Good Friday, and of Easter, that Jesus is a king of righteousness. And because he is a king of righteousness, he gives us a salvation that we never would have expected. We pick up this story then in verse 9, which has Jesus in Bethany, a town that would have been just to the east of Jerusalem. There are a few things that happen leading up to this passage which we should note. The most obviously important is that Jesus has just raised Lazarus from the dead. He has said, I am the resurrection and the life. And in order to prove that, he says, Lazarus, come forth, his friend who had died earlier. And he calls him forth out of the tomb in linen cloths, but alive. As you can imagine, anyone who performs a miracle like this uh, immediately increases in notoriety and popularity. It brings these, this news of Jesus to a near frenzied level. Everyone knows now that this Jesus, this teacher, he has power over life itself. People start thinking this Jesus is going to be a shoe-in to conquer Rome. And that's what the normal folks of Israel would have been thinking. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law fear that Jesus will start a revolution that will end up with Rome coming in and merely squashing Israel like a bug. It is to then this error of the Pharisees which we turn first. Right after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, the Pharisees and the chief priests have a meeting. And it says this in John chapter 11, verse 47. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many miraculous signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. See, they see that Jesus is going to be a dangerous revolutionary. And everyone's going to believe in him if they find out what he did to Lazarus. We read on. Then one of them named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. They thought that they needed to kill Jesus in order to save 
the nation as it was. But this does not solve all the problems because now there is Lazarus who is walking around and talking about what Jesus has done for him. And he is like a giant neon arrow or billboard that points everyone to the power and the lordship of Jesus. So we read in verse 10 of our passage that the Pharisees not only are plotting to kill Jesus, but they are plotting to kill uh, Lazarus as well. In the prologue of John's gospel, John says that Jesus came and he dwelt among us. He was full of grace and truth. But this grace and truth was something that the Pharisees and the leaders of Israel and the chief priests missed. They missed it because they were focused on the life they had at that time. See, they were the leaders in Israel. And even though Israel was under Roman rule, they they enjoyed a measure of power. You can see that they're worried about all of that going away. All that's going to disappear if this Jesus starts this revolution. They had lust for power and control. And Jesus was the risk that they could not stand to take. So they plot to kill him. They plot to kill Lazarus because they think that if they do not, the nation will end as they know it. The people fall into a different error. They do not interpret things exactly like the leaders of Israel. You can imagine the kind of excitement that would happen as Jesus leaves Bethany and is coming into Jerusalem. Uh, Conversations like this. Jesus is coming, the one who raised the man from the dead. And someone would respond, do you think he is the Messiah? They would answer back, he has to be. He has to be the Messiah. Who else would be able to raise someone from the dead? This spurs on the events that we know as Palm Sunday. So Jesus leaves Bethany to come into Jerusalem. And the the people, of course, lay palms on the road as as Jesus is coming into the city. Not only that, but people begin to sing the words of the psalm that we were singing earlier in Uh, the service this morning. They're singing the words of Psalm 118. This would have been on the celebration liturgy of the Passover feast. This would have been a psalm that they would have been singing that week anyways. And so they're singing this psalm together as Jesus is coming into Jerusalem. It speaks of the glory of David's kingdom and the miraculous ways which God preserved the nation. Listen to Psalm 118 in verse 10. It says this, All the nations surrounded me, but in the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me on every side, but in the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They swarmed around me like bees, but they died out as quickly as burning thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was pushed back and about to fall, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. So it it casts the history of Israel almost in the form of King David. No one would have expected that that King David could have defeated a warrior like Goliath. No one would have expected that he could have ruled with such power and might and could have increased the borders of Israel. Yet that is what he did. Thus the people of Jerusalem and the people coming into Jerusalem for the Feast of Passover hear of Jesus coming into the city and they say, Oh, we need to greet this Jesus. He is our king. Palms were used to greet royalty back in that day. 
And so they lay palms down on the road and they start singing this psalm. This would have been, relative to the way we we began this sermon, this would have been like people singing, God bless America, as this new political revolutionary rides into Washington, D.C. on July 4th. The road into the city is covered with palms. And Jesus does not respond in a way that discourages this kind of celebration. He goes and he finds a donkey. This would have seemed odd for many people, but if you knew your history in Israel, you would have known that both King David and King Solomon rode donkeys as their animal of choice. And so the people probably were thinking, oh, well, Jesus, he's, he's invoking that memory of King David and King Solomon. He's going to be the one who restores us to that time in our history. And this is also an allusion to the Old Testament. Of course, we read right in our passage that uh, Jesus is pointing us to Zechariah 9, verse 9, which says, Do not be afraid, O daughter of Zion. Your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. Thus, the people of Jerusalem see Jesus rightly as the new and the better King David. But they do not perfectly understand Jesus and his mission. Just like the Pharisees, the normal people of Israel also are caught up in error. They thought that Jesus has come for earthly revolution, for wars that would conquer the kings of the earth. So for the Pharisees and the chief priests, Jesus is a dangerous political revolutionary. For the normal people in Israel, Jesus is a hopeful political revolutionary who will give them liberation and independence from Roman, from Roman rule. As I was considering this passage this week, I began to realize that many people today still view Jesus through the lens of one of these two errors, don't they? Some people think, like the Pharisees, that they reject Jesus because they believe he was a failed political revolutionary. Just like the Pharisees, people do not want to give up the idols of this world. And so they reject Jesus. Like the leaders in Israel, their life was good enough. Even though we live under Roman rule, things are pretty good for us. We have a lot of power. We have a lot of sway. Uh, This world and this life really isn't all that bad. And so we don't want anyone to come in and and to flip it upside down. So they reject Jesus because they're addicted to the idols of this world. The other error, the error not of the leaders but of the people of Israel, view Jesus this way. In in Jesus, their hopes are raised up. Life was pretty bad for a lot of people in Israel living under Roman rule if you weren't one of the Pharisees or the chief priests or the scribes. Their hopes are raised up in Jesus, but they misunderstand what kind of king he is. They wanted Jesus to come in and try to overthrow Rome because they didn't have anything to lose. They had very little to lose. And so they say, well, even if Jesus fails, it's not like life is going to be that much worse. What do we have to lose? Life isn't that good for us anyways. And so they wanted Jesus to come in and to overthrow Roman rule. And people who do not have much to lose in this world are glad to hear about a Jesus who can make their earthly life so much better. So many people today shamefully have to hear a message that Jesus is some kind of genie king. Jesus is some kind of God who will will give you everything you want in this earthly life. 
The people, the normal people of Israel are viewing Jesus through this lens. Sure, let him try and overthrow Rome because this life isn't very good for us. And so many people have to hear about a Jesus who will give them everything they want. If they believe in him, if they have enough faith, this Jesus can turn your earthly life around. He can give you numerous blessings and make your life here that much better. But both of these errors, the error of the leaders in Israel and the error of the people of Israel, horribly misunderstand what it is that Jesus does, does for us. All we need to do to see this is to look at these two Old Testament passages that are invoked for us. Psalm 118 and Zechariah 9. They show us that this central figure of the Old Testament, this Messiah King who was to come, was that he would be the one who would not enter the world stage as another king to go into battle with the other kings of the earth, but he would bring transcendent, eternal peace through his righteousness. Zechariah 9, in a part that is not quoted in today's passage, it says this, this is what the Messiah King will do. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations and, he sh- and his rule shall be from sea to sea. See, the Messiah, King of David, was not to bring battle to the world, but peace. This is the symbolism that the people missed behind Jesus riding on a donkey. You see, it's not as if Jesus comes in the mold of kings David and Solomon and people are saying, oh, he's going to return us to uh, the glory of David and Solomon. No, David and Solomon existed as a type in the form and the mold of Jesus who was to come. Zechariah 9 says this king is humble and riding on a donkey. He brings peace because he is a king of righteousness and humility. Zechariah 9 says, righteous and having salvation is he. It is this righteousness which Jesus possesses that sets him apart from every other king in all of the world's history, in all of Israel's history as well. It is because Jesus is righteous. Imagine as he comes into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, what we know as Palm Sunday. Up to that point, he has never sinned once. He has lived perfectly and fully conformed to the will of the Father and the law of God, and he rides into the capital of the nation to which he was sent, of which he is rightly the king, and he is riding in as a king of righteousness. And this is why he can say, my kingdom is not of this world. As we turn to Psalm 118, this psalm also has a lot to say about righteousness and about what the king of Israel, the true and final Davidic king, can do because he is righteous. It says this, open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord, and the righteous shall enter through them. What does this mean? This means that Psalm 118 What it says is that the true and final Davidic king will be one who carries in himself the righteousness to enter the throne room of God, to enter the heavenly throne room and not be condemned because of sin. The first person who has ever lived on earth who can be able to say that, that within himself he has righteousness that allows him to enter heaven's glory and not be condemned. 
Isaiah the prophet in chapter 6, when he realizes that he is in the midst of the glory of God, what does he say? Woe is me, for I am undone. I live in the midst of a people of unclean lips. But Jesus is a righteous king. And it is as if the Gospel of John is calling out to us this morning, saying, remember the reason for your king's coming. He was not a dangerous political revolutionary in the way that the leaders of Israel thought. He was not a hopeful political revolutionary in the way that the people of Israel thought. He was so much greater than that because he was a king of righteousness who could enter into the heavenly throne room, into the heavenly Jerusalem, into the heavenly Zion, and bring us there. It all hinges, as we see in our passage, on glorification. Glorification. It's not just the leaders and the people who misunderstand Jesus. It's the disciples as well. Look with me at verse 16. At first, his disciples did not understand this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. What was it that changed what they were able to see? Glorification. Jesus being raised from the dead and going up into heaven. This became a hinge upon which all of their understanding turned. All of a sudden, everything was different. Jesus has been glorified. Now I understand. At the Last Supper in the Gospel of John, Jesus says, when the Holy Spirit is given, he will bring to mind all the things that I say to you. And it is as if, as Jesus is resurrected and he ascends into heaven and the Holy Spirit comes, all of a sudden it clicks for them. Everything that was written in the Old Testament is pointing us to this Jesus. Everything that was written long ago, all the things that he did and that were done to him, they're all pointing us to Jesus and his heavenly work. He did not come to restore an earthly Zion or an earthly Jerusalem. He came to bring us to the real Jerusalem, heavenly Jerusalem. Not just made for earthly Israelites, but Jews and Gentiles together gathered under the banner of our righteous king. The foundational problem of human existence is that we're separated from God. And Jesus was sent to correct this fundamental, foundational flaw that we had brought upon ourselves. Hebrews chapter 12 says it like this. It says, You have not come to a mountain which you can touch, not come to a mountain which you can see on this earth. It says this, through faith in Christ, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in feastal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. You see, it's, it's bringing all of our attention and all of our affection to the heavenly things and saying it's so much better than anything you will find on this earth. And to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a better covenant, to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The blood of Abel says war, 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 endless war, endless rumors of wars, man hating their fellow man, a brother killing his own. But Jesus says something else. Jesus' blood says peace. Peace with God. And it says peace with God because he is a righteous king. What a blessing it is to see those uh, this morning who professed faith publicly in the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
to say that that which is heavenly, that which is eternal, is that which they are making primary in their life. They will put the glory of God and the name of Jesus Christ before everything else. Whatever this world has to offer them, Jesus is first. This is why Jesus brings us true hope. It's different hope than anything you will find on this earth. It is different. Reconciled to God as a righteous king who can go into heaven for you. His reign will have no end His kingdom will never be conquered, nor will it ever go into battle. For he will vanquish his foes in one fell swoop. He will create peace from sea to sea. This, the true Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem, to which Jesus brings us, the kingdom of which he has made us to be a part by faith because of his righteousness, this is our home where our Savior has gone and now is. Today, brothers and sisters, today, may we be so thankful for the righteousness of Christ. For there is no hope. There is no hope in this world without it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are good, and your righteousness is everlasting. Thank you for our true king of righteousness who walked through this earth and won for us a salvation which was so much better than anything this world has to offer. By the power of your spirit, fix the eyes of our faith upon this Jesus. Let us look to the heavenly Jerusalem, Mount Zion, the place which Jesus went to prepare for us. And in this world, may we live according to your law, seeking your honor and your glory as the Holy Spirit conforms us to the image of Christ. May we live in faithfulness, thankfulness, and gratitude as one people of God spread throughout the world of every tribe, tongue, and nation. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.